Okay, we are uh, Monday. This is the second talk uh, that we're going to be doing. And um, I wish everyone were here, but we're not. But majority of you are, are uh, here. We're going to start off. Let's, let me ask you a question. In the very beginning of the Bible, we have a wedding. It's between what two people? Adam and Eve. At the end of the Bible, we have a wedding. You remember what it was? Jesus and the church. In the middle of the Bible, Jesus gives a parable. He says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a what? Wedding. A king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Now, I was speaking in Gersen. And while I'm in Gersen, uh, I had a woman on the front row. Lydia, do you remember who the woman was on the front row? Anyhow, her name was Mama. We called her Mama. I guess everyone's Mama. And I said, Mama, do you have sons? Oh, yes, I have sons. Are they going to be married? Yes, 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 they're, they're going to be married. I said, um, let me ask you a question. Do you want a mature bride for your son or an immature bride for your son? And of course she said, mature. I said these words. I think that's what God the Father wants for his son. He wants a mature bride, which means some Christians may be immature. I want to challenge you today, this morning. God wants a mature bride for his son. So let's see if there's any scripture that backs that up. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Now, since this is all being recorded, I'm going to say this once. Hopefully, it'll help you. Colossians 1, 28. Again, it's all on the recordings. It's all being recorded. But uh, for me, it was very helpful. Of course, we all know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's easy. Acts, Romans, okay, got that. The Corinthians, but then it gets really messy. Okay, they taught me, go eat popcorn. Go eat pop Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's a way to remember those books. And then after that come all the T's in alphabetical order. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, T-H, T-H, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then Titus. Then Hebrews, then the rest. So we're going to go to Colossians. Go eat popcorn, the corn of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says these words. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ. Why do you think they have to be mature? Well, if, if you knew nothing about rewards, if you knew nothing about a wedding, this doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, it'd be nice to be mature. Yeah. No big deal. If I'm not mature, I still get to go to heaven. 
so I'm not that worried. But now if you start to think, huh, God wants a mature bride for his son? Maybe I need to worry about whether or not I'm going to be a part of the bride. I want to challenge you. Paul is saying, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that so powerfully works within me. Go on a few, in the next page, Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand what? Mature and fully assured in the will of God. You disciple women, you're in the women's ministry. You need to pray that they mature. Not just that they pray a prayer, that they mature. That was Paul's goal. That was Epaphras' goal. You're going to find out if you don't mature, you're not going to be a part of the bride. You're going to lose out on rewards. That's motivation for maturing. If you don't believe in that, no motivation. We're all going to go to heaven. What's the big deal? We're all going to be, we're all going to be the same in heaven. We're all going to be holding hands, sharing precious verses, and it's not a big deal. That's not the way I read the scriptures. Go to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. So back up a few books. Go eat popcorn. E, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. Well, let's start at verse 14. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with what? How much of the fullness of God? All mature, all the fullness of God. Paul just didn't want Christians. He wanted mature Christians. Ephesians 4, 13 to 16. Until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to what? To mature adulthood, adult, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be what? Why does he not want them to be children? Because they're tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning of craftiness, deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to be grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow that it builds itself up in love. It wants to mature. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. Start at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without what? Spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless without blemish. Now, I call a lot of what I teach theology by implication. Theology by implication. What is implied in that verse? I want to present you before him without spot or wrinkle. What's implied? Perfection, which means what? Some people might not be perfect. They're going to have blemishes. Oh, I can stand before God with blemishes? How does that work? Because Christ died for all my sins. You're going to find out in this hour. But he says, I want you to be there without spot, without blemish. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. Start at verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, that has been proclaimed into all the earth. So here we have... Paul's desire to present you holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless before him. Which implies some people might not be holy and blameless. So he's not just saying, I'm hoping that you're a Christian. But he's saying, as a Christian, there's a possibility that you're not mature and you're not holy, and you're not blameless. I want to challenge you in the very big picture of what God is doing. God is looking for a bride for his son. And he only wants a mature bride. Hence... We see on our little graph, pull your brochures out. Right here. Matthew 22, 2 is the verse that I'm basically teaching on. And the question is, does God want a mature bride or an immature bride? I want to challenge you. That's what life is about. You have got 60, 70, 80 years to prove whether or not you are mature or immature. And let me tell you, the Bible is full of immature Christians. Full. We're going to find out. You're going to have to study it. We're going to break you down. You're going to go over immature Christians in the Bible. 
But I'm saying that's why we're here on this earth. He wants to see how we're going to do. Are we going to use our gifts and our talents for his kingdom? Or are we going to use our gifts and our talents for our kingdom? Many pastors are preaching for their kingdom. And they are not going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And there will be a penalty for being immature. That's what I call the restoration fire or the salted fire. How does that differ from what most people think Christianity is about? King David, if you were to summarize most of Christianity preached in Kenya, what would you say the main goal is? Uh, uh, they are selfish. And they would say that whatever they preach is just for their Right, but if you were to get up in front of a church, they invited you to speak and say, what's Christianity all about? What would you say the average pastor is going to say? Going to heaven. Going to heaven. Avoid hell, get to heaven. Do most pastors preach about living a holy life? No. They don't. Avoid hell and get to heaven. Can you be immature by avoiding hell? Yes, you can be very immature by just walking away from hell. If hell's over there, heaven's, I'm going to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I, 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 I. You can be very immature avoiding hell. But if you realize it's not just about avoiding hell and getting to heaven, it's about maturing, that's a whole different Christianity. Oh, this is about maturing, growing strong. Now I'm beginning to understand. And hence you see all the verses of Paul. I work that I might make you mature in Christ. I strive with all his energy. Okay. Now, whole new topic. So we started one topic, and that topic was God wants a mature bride for his son. Now we're going to a whole other topic. Put a big line in your notes, whatever you want to do. Okay? I want to tell you why I believe in eternal security. Eternal security. Once saved, always saved. You've got to agree to this for the rest of this teaching to make sense. If you don't agree with it, then you're going to have problems. And I understand that. And again, I told you the Bible is very difficult to understand. And so as a result of that, I can see why we can have differences of opinion. And I'll respect that. But I'm teaching you a Christianity that has the fewest problems. A Christianity that has the fewest problems. Because if you don't, if you believe backslidden Christians can go to hell, I've got theological problems with that. And so we, and uh, so every theology has problems. I'm teaching you the one that has what I believe to be the fewest problems. If you were to go to the book of John, there's only one author in the Bible who said, I wrote this whole book so that you could know Jesus. Anybody know who that author is? 
John. John chapter 20, verse 31. John chapter 20, verse 31. I'll read it for you. He writes these words. Now Jesus did many other miracles or other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he said the whole reason I wrote the book was so that you would believe. And if you believe, you've got life. Now, Turn to John chapter 1, verse 12. John chapter 1, verse 12. We're starting at verse 11. He came to his own and his own people, but did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. So, how do you become a child of God? Believe in his name. Believe in his name. Go to chapter 2. Verse 11. This is the first of his signs when he turned the water into wine. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples, what? Believed in him. John is beginning to lay a foundation that when he talks about believing, he's talking about being believers. Skip on down to verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many what? Believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. John chapter 3, verse 13. I have told you earthly things and you did not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is focusing on believing. Look at John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has what? Life. Eternal life. And does not, he who does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you go through the book of John, believe, 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 believe. Now, if you were to get on your computer or your phone and search for the word repent or repentance in the book of John, guess how many times it would come up? Winnie, any guess? 10, 15, 20, 30, 30. A hundred. No, what? Uh, maybe ten. Zero. Zero. Zero times in the book of John do you find the word repent or repentance. What does that tell you? Do you have to repent to be a believer? No. What do you have to do? Believe. I'm going to show you very quickly. There's a difference between being a child of God and being a disciple of Christ. One is immature. One is mature. 
But if you want to be a child of God, all you have to do is believe. Believe what? Believe in Christ. What does that mean? Well, you probably it means you've got to acknowledge that you're sinful. You, you know you can't make it to God on your own and you need a Savior and you think Jesus is it. If you pass those qualifications, you are a believer. I believe in Jesus. When you start talking about repentance, you've switched from being a child of God to being a disciple of Christ. And they're two totally different individuals. Okay? Now, he says in John 3, 36, the last passage we just read. He who believes in me has eternal, everlasting life. Moses, what tense? He has everlasting. What tense is that? Past, present, or future? Present. What does he presently have? What kind, is it temporary? He said temporary, didn't he? He said what? Everlasting. If you believe in Christ, you have, present tense, everlasting life. Can you ever lose it? Well, some people say yes. But if you lose it, how can you have it? How can it be everlasting if you have it? That would be temporary life. He didn't say you have temporary life. He said you have eternal life. I have everlasting life. God says, all you got to do is believe. Believe. That's why he says in Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, to him who is thirsty, come buy and drink without money. Just drink. Believe in me, Peter. If brings condition. If what? The word if. If. if yeah. Brings condition. If, if, if it's conditional, yes. Now, if you believe you have eternal life, can you ever stop believing while you used to believe? And if you stop believing, will you lose eternal life? Because you have need. If you ever stop believing, will you lose that eternal life? If you lose that eternal life, then it wasn't eternal. It was temporary. Then what was the implication of the condition? If you have to first believe. And once you believe, you have it forever. <clears throat> Can you stop believing? First off, who are we to judge whether or not the person stops or not? We don't know. And secondly, okay, I'll, <clears throat> the man who taught me this is named Lucas Kitchen. He didn't teach it to me. I read it in his book. His book is called Salvation and Discipleship, Is There a Difference? Salvation and Discipleship, Is There a Difference? And so he goes on and he's trying to prove eternal security. And he goes this far. He says this. I say to my atheistic friends, did you believe in God as a child? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ask him to be your savior? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't believe anymore. I'm sorry, 
you're going to heaven. No, I'm not. I don't even believe in him. I'm sorry. You're going to heaven. But I don't believe in him. You have eternal life. Now that's a gutsy statement, right? That's a very bold statement to make. And so I try to think through that. And as I think through that, I think one of two things. Number one, what happens if he stands before Jesus on judgment day? What do you think he's going to say? Say what? I can't hear you. I didn't want this in the first place. I didn't want this in the first place. What? Eternal salvation or going to hell? I didn't want to go to hell. That's why when I was a child, I what? Will you please give me grace? And what do you think God's going to say? Of course. Come into my kingdom. You believed in me as a child. I guaranteed it forever. That's my guess. Now, I could be wrong. He could be wrong. You could be right. The word if means it's conditional on believing. But if it is that way, I've got a problem because it's not everlasting life. It's just temporary life. Why would he say everlasting life? Why would he put that word in there? So I want to challenge that even the scriptures teach you can even lose your faith. Remember someone who shipwrecked what? His what? Faith. That meant he had faith. That meant he's a believer. That means he has eternal life. It's possible to shipwreck your faith and still have eternal life. If you believe once saved, always saved. If you believe you can lose your salvation, then I have a lot of other problems with scriptures. Now, I'll get back to that in just a second. But keeping the big picture, if John says, I wrote these things that, that you might believe in his name and have everlasting life, and there's zero repentance, what's the rest of the Bible all about? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. All scripture is what? Inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Let's stop right. Well, let's finish it out. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every what? Good work. Good work. Does that sound immature or mature? <gasps> What's the rest of the Bible all about? Trying to get you to maturity. Why? God's looking for a? For his son. Oh, good works help us mature. Belief gets us salvation. It gets us in the door. All the rest of Scripture is to get us to mature. Hence, again, I go back to that foundation. God's looking for a mature bride for his son. Now, again, why I believe in eternal security. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verses 16 
I'm sorry, 13. Ephesians 1, 13. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and, and what? Believed in him. Were what? With whom? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sealed you. Think of a king uh, in, the Old Test- in, the Old, in the Old Testament, whatever, when he had a letter to send to somebody, he took some wax, he melted it on the seal of the envelope, and he put his ring on it. It was a sealed envelope. Nobody could break that. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So my question to the if question, Peter, is how do you unseal the Holy Spirit? I don't know. I have no answer for that. Now, if you quit believing, you might say, then he withdraws his seal. Okay, but then it wasn't eternal life. It was just temporary life. And that doesn't seem to add up. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. Turn to Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. He's talking about how we're in Christ. And he says, We have been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Raised up, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. What tense is he speaking here, Peter? Past, present, or future? Nope. Look at the verse. Seated with Christ. Raised with Christ. What tense? Past. Past. It's a done deal. You're already with Christ. Seated with him in the heavenly realms. Raised up from the dead already. Past tense. It's Done, delivered, sealed. His blood covered everything. Another reason I believe in eternal security. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30. Again, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, just write that down. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And you, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands canceled or canceling the record of debt. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him. Nailing it to the cross. All of the, what stood between us and heaven was the law. Because the law says you have to be perfect. We fall short, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not perfect, therefore we're not allowed into heaven. Christ said, 
I will live a perfect life on your behalf. When I live that perfect life, my life will be your life. And so my perfect life will be in exchange for you. And so all of the rules, all of the law that stood against you is nailed to the cross. It is completed. It's finished. It's done. You're completely free of the law. Why I say eternal security. You believe in him? Nothing. No, Satan can't bring up any rule against you because any law he brings up against you was completely fulfilled in Christ. Completely fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, don't have to worry about it. You've got eternal security. Even if you backslide, you still have eternal security. But you may not be mature. You're still going to heaven. But there will be consequences, we'll find out, for the immature Christians. Okay? Following. Don't have to agree with me, but are you following my reason of thought? I believe in eternal security. And it helps make the scriptures much more easy to understand. I also believe because we have eternal security, we have the freedom to do whatever we want. And he says, I want to see how you choose to live your life. Do you want to live it for my kingdom or do you want to live it for your kingdom? So just write these verses down because we have so much to cover, we're not going to look them up. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Choose life that you might live. I believe scripturally we have free will and we can choose. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Choose this day whom you will serve. He's speaking to the children of Israel, people who are, I would consider saved or who are believers. Choose this day whom you will serve. Psalm 119, verse 30. Psalm 119, verse 30. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. In other words, I made a choice. I made a choice. Psalm 119, verse 173. Psalm 119, verse 173. 173. I have chosen your precepts. I chose it. Proverbs 1, 29. Proverbs 1, 29. Because I hated knowledge, I did not choose to fear the Lord. I did not choose to fear the Lord. John chapter 6, verses 66 and 67. John 6, verses 66 and 67. Jesus, in the context, is speaking about eating from his, his flesh and his blood. And he's saying, my flesh and my blood. And they're like, 
I'm not going to eat your body. <clears throat> and so many of them fall away. And then he says to his disciples, what do you want to do? In other words, you've got a choice. Do you still want to follow me or do you want to walk away like them? Jesus wasn't into numbers. He was into obedience. So he's saying to his disciples, you've got a choice, guys. You've got a choice. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter six, verse 12. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. What does he mean all things are lawful? Winnie, any guess? All things are lawful. You're allowed by God to do anything you want. How could he say that? Free will. And is he saying good things or bad things or both? Both. Why can you do bad things? We have free will. And what did Christ do? He fulfilled the law. Therefore, you can do whatever you want. All things are profitable, but not all things are. I'm sorry. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So he's saying you can do whatever you want, but I don't encourage it, but you can do whatever you want. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Let's see it one last time. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Because he uses the word brothers. Who is he speaking to? Believers. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Opportunity for the flesh. Moses, what do you think he's saying there? What are the, what's the flesh all about? What kind of sin? Sexual immorality. All the lusts of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. Boastful pride of life. You're called to freedom, but don't use it for the flesh. What's he implying? That what? You've got a choice. You'd never tell your young people this, would you? You want to sleep around? Jesus already paid the price. But there will be a consequence. We're going to find out about that tomorrow. This goes against what is called reformed theology. Have you heard the term? Who's heard the term reformed theology? Okay. Reformed theology says, if you truly know Jesus, you start out with a lordship salvation, meaning the moment I accept Jesus into my life, he's Lord. I will go wherever he tells me to go, do whatever he tells me to do. I do not believe in lordship salvation. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I specifically don't think John teaches that. Why do I not think John teaches that? Because in the book of John, there are 
Zero words of repent or repentance. If, there were, if it was a lordship salvation, I think it would be all throughout the book of John. Repent, repent, repent. But now I realize, oh, that's for being a disciple, not just for being a child of God. There's a difference. I believe God is so gracious. He's saying, if you just want to get to heaven, just believe. Just believe. I've covered everything. I fulfilled the law. It's nailed to the cross. You have freedom. All things are profitable, but all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And we're going to get into that much tomorrow. So we have a choice. You came to know Jesus? Good. Now you've got a choice. Now you've got a choice. Do you want to mature or do you want to stay immature? How did I, how did I portray that in the, in the graph, on the brochure, in the very front page? Do you remember? What do you see there? What do you note about the banana? Bananas. They're very green. They're not ripe at all. Many Christians start off very immature and our goal is to ripen, to mature. And we looked at all those verses where Paul says, I'm here to mature you, to mature you. Now, we have a choice. I believe Jesus said that to his disciples. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Actually, let's start out. You can write that down. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. But let's start with Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 and tell me what happened. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up of the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Who was the Sermon on the Mount to? Disciples. The disciples? That wasn't to the masses? It was to the disciples. You would never say to the masses, to, an, to a non-Christian, when people beat you, when they say all kinds of evil things against you, for my name's sake, rejoice and be glad. That's not very good evangelism, is it? This message was to his disciples. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. As he's toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says these words. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Who's he talking to? Why, why would you all of a sudden say the masses? He's talking to his disciples. Now remember, I said this book is very difficult to what? 
Let me tell you why it's difficult to understand. Read the last few, two verses in chapter 7. Read it out loud to us. Last two verses in chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as, as the Who was listening in? The crowds. The crowd. So was he talking to the disciples or the crowds? I don't know. That's why this book is very difficult too. You don't know if at that point he lifted his eyes up over his disciples and was talking to the masses or if he was focused on his disciples. He's talking about a what? Enter by the narrow gate. He's talking about gates. There's a narrow gate and there's a wide gate. Is this gate the beginning or the end? Text doesn't tell you. But it probably sounds like the beginning because he just told his disciples some very difficult things and now he's saying, I'm sorry? Enter. You've got a choice. You've got a choice. The narrow gate or the wide gate. Door number one or door number two. <laughs> what do you want? You've got a choice. Now let's look at the words that were used. The way... Enter by the, the way, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. The way, the word is hodos in the original Greek, H-O-D-O-S. It's here in my notes. You can get them from Ronnie and look them up later. In, he uses the same word in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. This is being recorded, so you can write it down quickly if you want. But he talks a man who is unstable in all his ways. He's talking about a way of life. So the way is not just a road, it's a way of life. It's the same in James 5.20. Uh, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, hodos, wandering, his way of life. Luke 11.6, a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, hodos, same Greek word, hodos. He's talking about a way of life. So, so he's starting off and he's saying, in Matthew chapter 7, he's saying the way... Um, the way of life that you've, that you've got a choice from between. There's one way that is wide and easy. Wide and easy. The Greek word for wide is uh, platis. It's in, it's in the notes here. Uh, it means broad or flat or wide. It's usually used in the context of the way to go into a city. The major road into a city. And what do you find on major roads into cities? Usually you find people who are selling things. And usually if you buy from them, are you getting a good deal or a bad deal? Usually you're getting a bad deal. Because you're just new to the city, you're just coming in. Yeah, that sounds, and, and you find out it's half price inside. What was I thinking? You're getting ripped off. Broad is the way that leads to
to destruction. Now, uh, you have to uh, understand, again, one of the reasons this book is so hard to understand is that some of the people who translated the words in your Bible came at it with a certain theological point of view. Understand? And if they thought, oh, this fits my point of view, they'll translate that word in the specific way that agrees with their theology. So some of your Bibles will say, broad and wide lay that leads to hell. That's not what the Greek word is. Oh, but it fits my theology, so I'm going to translate it that way. The word hell is not really in the New Testament. It's the word either Apollia or Gehenna. Gehenna was the garbage dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where you would throw your garbage and they would burn it. How long would it burn for? It was always burning because they're always throwing trash. It burned forever. Now, not forever because it now has been since stopped a long time ago. But if a person died from a foreigner, if a foreigner died inside the city of Jerusalem and nobody knew who they were, they would put his body in Gehenna. Why? They, didn't, they weren't going to bury him. They weren't gonna, some, no one was going to pay for a plot. So they'd put some chemicals on him and they would burn his body. It was a tremendous shame to have that happen. Gehenna can also mean shame. Shame. And the word that they use here for destruction is apollalia. And apollalia means destroying or utter destruction or perishing or ruin. In other words, it's not the way it was designed to be. It gets ruined. So Jesus could be saying this words. Look, guys, I just gave you a very hard sermon. And you've got a choice. Your sins are paid for. I'm going to nail them to a cross. But you've got a choice. There's a broad and wide way that leads to ruin. I call that dysfunctionality. Does that word communicate? Dysfunctional. You understand that, Charles? Collins, you get it? Dysfunctional? Functional versus purpose versus no purpose. Meaning versus no meaning. Functional versus dysfunctional. Broad and wide is the way that leads to a dysfunctional life. Do you see Christians in your church who are dysfunctional? Oh, yes. All the time. Their marriages are hurting. Their kids are openly rebelling. You look at them and you say, I'm sure they know the Lord, but <laughs> from there on, it's just a big question mark. Yes, there are many Christians who are dysfunctional. Now, let's go to the rest of it. And how many find that dysfunctional way? What does the text say? Many. Jesus is challenging us. Many Christians choose the easy way out. It's broad. It's a lifestyle that leads to dysfunctionality. And the majority of Christians are going to choose it. 
that's what I see in my churches, my church back home. The majority of people have chosen a dysfunctional, purposeless life. I hate to say it, but it's the truth. Then he goes on to say, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Okay, hard, the way is hard. The word he uses there is thlebo. It's a Greek word. And they use that Greek word when you press wine or press the juice out of grapes to make wine. What do you have to do to get juice out of a grape? Crush it, press it, pressure. Narrow is the gate and that way has pressure and it leads to life. Is it everlasting life, meaning the way to heaven? If it is meaning heaven, he's saying you have to go through pressure to get to heaven. And that goes against the whole book of John. Because all John says is all you have to do is believe. So I'm looking for a theology with the fewest problems, the least problems. I don't think this is referring to everlasting life. I think what he's saying is if you're going to find persecution, you're going to find a life full of purpose and meaning. You're going to have a functional life. In other words, don't shy away from persecution. Don't shy away from the hard times. Trust me with it. Walk me through it. If you do, you will have a life full of purpose and meaning. But it's going to be hard. How many of you find that living the Christian life is hard? It takes discipline. You've got to meet with God. You've got to serve your wife. Yeah, and that's not easy. Because she's going to laugh the whole way. And you've got to be willing to stand up for Christ. And have people mock you, laugh at you, say all kinds of bad things against you. And especially if you start preaching to pastors, you're preaching for your own kingdom. You're going to be crucified. Jesus said the way is hard. And few are those who find it. Few are those who mature. And you know what? What When I look at my churches, my church, I don't, I'm not a pastor, but the church I attend, when I look at the church I attend, very few people are mature. Very few are mature. Most are just, God bless me, God bless me, God bless me, and they go home. They're not helping the poor. They're not helping widows. They're trying to use their money for a safe, fun, happy lifestyle. So, I want to challenge you. Jesus said, I've given you a choice. There's a broad, wide door that will be fun and easy, and it leads to dysfunctionality, immaturity. There's a small and narrow door that's going to be 
full of pressure and persecution, but it leads to a significant life full of purpose and meaning, not only here on this earth, but for all eternity future. Go to your brochures. Go to the back side of your brochure. Diagram B, right here in the top right. What do you, what's the difference between those two doors in the middle? One is what? Wide. And the other one is? Narrow. And you see a bunch of words above it and below it. These are comparing two different lifestyles. We're going to get into that right now. We're going to begin to talk about that. Okay. I want to now put a big dash across your notes. We're starting a whole new section now. I want to challenge you. There's a difference between being a child of God and being a disciple of Christ. A child of God versus a disciple of Christ. There's a difference scripturally, I believe. John chapter 1 verse 12, we've already read it. He who believes in him has the right to become a child of God. A child of God. Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. You don't have to do a thing. Just believe in me. Without payment, just believe in me. You can become a child of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You all have it memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. It is a gift from God. Do you pay anything for a gift? No, it's free. Child of God, free, without money, without cost, just believe. You don't even have to repent. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Okay? Turn to John chapter 15, verse 14. John chapter 15, verse 14. You are my friends. If you keep my commands. <gasps> conditional or unconditional? I'm sorry? Conditional. You mean I'm not going to be a friend of God unless I keep his commands? That's right. But I thought it was unconditional. It's unconditional for being a child, but it's conditional if you want to be his friend, his disciple. If you understand that, you will understand all the conditional passages in the Bible. 
All the conditional passages in the Bible are designed to get you to be a disciple or a friend of God. Now, well, we'll just, we'll keep going. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 23. Luke 14, 25 to 23. I'm sorry. That doesn't make sense, does it? 33. Thank you. Listen to these and see if they're conditional or unconditional and what it's conditional for. You ready? And great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and, and deliberate whether he has with 10,000 to meet those coming against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who cannot renounce all that he has cannot be my what? Now, he's not talking about being a child of God. He's talking about being a... And is it conditional or unconditional? Very conditional. You've got to hate father, brother, mother, sister, even your own life. Does that mean you have to literally hate them? No, it means... In comparison to my love to God, it's like I almost hate my parents because I'm, that's what he's trying to say. In comparison, your love for God should be so great that it doesn't look like you love others nearly as much. Conditional. Conditional. If you want to be his disciple, conditional. Luke 9, 23 and 24. If anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever should save his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Conditional or unconditional? Very conditional. He gives conditional words. Skip on down to verses 57, Luke 9, 57 to 62. Luke 9, same chapter, 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And he said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hands to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, is useful in the kingdom of God. What's he saying? 
Conditional or unconditional? Any conditional statement takes you from being simply a child of God to a disciple. And I want to challenge you. Those disciples are the ones who are mature. They've entered through the narrow door and they're going to be a part of his bride. You want to be a child? God says, I'll take you. But you're not going to earn the right to be a part of my bride. All of a sudden, there's a whole new motivation in living a holy, blameless life. Whether or not you really want to be a part of the bride, whether or not you really want to rule and to reign with Christ. We're going to get into that much more tomorrow. Matthew 10, 33. Matthew chapter 10, he's in the context of sending out his disciples. Matthew 10, verse 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Conditional or unconditional? Very conditional. Does this mean they're going to go to hell? If it does, it means you have to do things to go to hell and that's not a free gift. So this must have something other than going to heaven or going to hell. And so we're going to find out tomorrow. Denied to God the Father is saying, Lord, Father, this one's not worthy to be a part of my bride. You're going to find that out tomorrow. But it's conditional. It's conditional. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark chapter 8. Well, let's, I've got so much to cover. We're going to, I'm just going to say these to you, okay? Mark 8, 34. Look that one up later. This is why you have to listen to it twice. You've got to stop, pause, and, and Matthew 16, verse 24. Matthew 19, verse 21. John chapter 8. Verses 31 and 32. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Okay. Big slash in your notes. We're starting a whole new section. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, just a question. Just an answer. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> when you say once saved, forever saved, I think that's what you're building on. I just want to find out what is the place of the devil in all these concepts. What is the job, what is the job description yeah. of the devil? Do you think he wants you to be a part of the bride? No. So he wants to keep you what? Distracted. Immature, distracted, or immature. Yeah. I'd say that's the goal of the devil. To keep you immature, to keep you distracted from following Christ. Take me away. To not get the rewards to rule and reign with Christ. You're still going to go to heaven. Once you're a believer, he knows. Once saved... Forever saved, therefore, I'm just going to keep him immature. I'm going to throw drugs, sex, everything at his flesh and try to get him to be going for it so that he'll stay immature and lose his rewards. We'll find out more about that tomorrow. No, no, you only said one question. You said I have a question that's singular. Go ahead. Can the devil have a hold or a claim? even in heaven, in regards to a backslidden Christian. 
Can the devil have a hold or a claim in heaven on a backslidden Christian? I say absolutely not. Certainly not in heaven. Nothing evil is allowed to enter into heaven according to Revelation 22, so Satan can't be there. Nor is your old nature allowed to go into heaven. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Do you understand old nature first off? Okay, so when you are born, we have a nature, a soul, a nature, okay? Does it want to obey or disobey? It naturally wants to disobey. When you believe in Jesus, what happens? He puts onto your old nature a new nature. In the Bible, it's either called new nature or walking according to the spirit, the old nature according to the flesh. Spirit and flesh, they battle against each other. Okay? And on this earth, in my life, I have an old nature. It's nailed to the cross, it says in the book, in the Bible. But it hasn't died yet. It still wants to live out the flesh. I say no to pornography just about every day because I do most of my work by myself. Nobody would ever know that I'm looking at it. But I keep saying no. I keep saying no because I want to mature. And I want to get the full blessing that God has for me in eternity future. But my old nature keeps saying, just look at it. <laughs> just look at it. No, no. I keep wrestling. Okay? So, is your old nature going to go into heaven? No. It's going to be cut off and killed, and you'll only have your new nature in heaven. So you've got to, right now, if you're a believer, old nature and new nature. Old nature wants to rebel. New nature wants to obey God. So they said, the analogy, there are two dogs in a fight. Old nature, new nature. Which one's going to win? The one you feed the most. If you're looking at pornography, if you're looking at other women, if you're doing things that aren't pleasing to God, this old nature is going to beat out the new nature until you die and then it'll eventually be cut off. But there will be some consequences, severe consequences we find out tomorrow. If you feed your new nature more, you're listening to praise music, you're studying the word, you're, you're having quiet times with God, this new nature is going to dominate over this one. He's still alive, but he's not in control. And you will be richly rewarded. You're going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and you'll be rewarded tremendously. So does Satan have hold over that old nature in heaven? No, because it's not going to exist in heaven. And Satan's not allowed in heaven anyhow. Nothing evil can enter into the gates. Okay? Now, yes, sir. I have a question. Maybe from your studies all those years, what percentage of the teachings of Jesus Christ would you think were directed to the disciples more than to child? How... What percentage was conditional or non-conditional? I would say, I mean, um, I, would pr I haven't done a, a percentage analysis, but I'd probably say 70% is toward the disciples and is conditional. And that's why the Catholic Church says you get to heaven based on works. Because they never dif differentiated between a child of God and a disciple. And they looked at all the disciple passages and saw works, 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 works. Oh, you must get to heaven through good works. And we say, no, you don't get to heaven by good works. You get to heaven by grace. But works earn you rewards and allows you to be a disciple. And that takes you to another level. We're going to study about that. We're going to begin studying about it after lunch. But I want to lay a foundation. Okay.
Sons of Abraham, form one group, four of you, four of you, form one group, and you're going to get into a small group. You guys, you four, form yourselves a group. You three, form, break yourselves into groups of three or four. I don't want you to fall asleep on me. Peter doesn't want to be with his wife. Some women time. Get your pens out. Get your pens out. Write down. I'm going to give you a list of verses. Ladies, ladies. I know you're ladies. You've got to listen. Get your pencils out. You've got to write down all these verses. Or at least one person in your group has to write the verses down. You're going you're gonna to look up the verses and you're going to say, Oh, look, these are children, not disciples. And look what the Bible says about Children, okay? Immature Christians. You ready? Matthew 7, 1 through 4. Matthew 7, 1 through 4. Everybody, someone in your group has to write it down. Oh, okay, you do it. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 6. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 6. 1 Timothy... 5, verse 8. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 to 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 to 22. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verse 34, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. 1 Timothy chapter 3, Verse 3. First Timothy 3 3. And First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. First Timothy 4, verse 1. What does Paul and the writers, Jesus and Paul and whoever the author of Hebrews is, what do they say about these children? Of God. Tell me what they say about the children of God. You get about 10 or 15 minutes. I want you to have answers. You done?
You guys done? Okay. Um, even if you're not done, let's bring your attention up front. Let's go through each one of these. My goal is to help you to see that there are Christians, Paul recognized them, who were simply children who were doing terrible things with their freedom. All right? So, what did you learn from Matthew 7, 1 through 5? Christians can be what? Hypocrites. Christians can be hypocrites. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 6. Lust and what else? Sexual immorality. Are they Christians? How do you know it was Christians? Because, not just because they're in church. Brothers. Don't do this to your brother. If he's saying brother, that's a scripture way of saying they're a believer. Are, are people who are sleeping around going to go to heaven? Yes. Okay. Oh, good. I can sleep around all I want. Wait until tomorrow's talk. <laughs> First Timothy 5.8. They're not providing for their family. And they're worse than non-believers, which means they're what? They're a believer. There are some believers who are not providing for their family, and they're worse than non-believers. Yeah, there are some Christians like that. Yep. Okay, next one. 1 Corinthians 11. Selfish in the church. What else? Not taking care of the poor. What else? Humiliation. They humiliate others. And they're getting drunk and they're greedy. Drunk in the church. Have you ever had someone come to the church drunk? Oh, we've got to cast Satan out of them and get them to become a believer. No, they may already be a believer. But they're not a disciple. And unless you differentiate between those two, they may never know the difference. Because in their heart of hearts, they know they're trusting Jesus. Even though they're not living it out well, I'm still trusting Jesus. I don't get it. So they've never seen the difference. 1 Timothy 5.20. I'm sorry? To be... They've got to be an example. Be warned and be an example. And, not, and what about their sin? Is it just a once in a while thing? Persistent in sin. Christians can be persistent in sin. That's what Paul says. That goes against reformed theology, which says, oh, no, you will get better and better and better. That's not what I see in the scriptures. I see Christians who are persistent in sin because of that verse. 1 Corinthians 5.11. Greedy and what? Idolatry and swindlers. They steal from others. Have you had people in your church who are businessmen who make terrible deals? <laughs> yeah. Can they still be believers? Yes. Are they disciples? No. 
No. First Corinthians 15, 34. Ignorance of God and sinning and remaining in that sin. Okay? Hebrews 3, 12. Unbelieving hearts. Unbelieving hearts or evil hearts that can be translated. Christians can have evil hearts. That's what it seems to be saying. Yes. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Sexual immorality inside the church. 1 Timothy 3, 3. They love money more than God. Are there some people in your churches who love money more than God? Even pastors. Absolutely. Pastors. They're quarrelsome. Yep, violent. If you want to be blessed, give me your car. If you want to be blessed, sell your business and give me the money. I mean, I've heard these stories from Kenya. Um, I'm not making these up. They love their money. 1 Timothy 4.1. Abandon their faith. But they sound like they had faith. If they had faith, that means... Once saved, always saved. Which would imply either, number one, what Peter is saying, either they give up their faith and they're not real believers. But if that was the case, they didn't have eternal life. They had temporary life. But that's not what Jesus said. Or there can be some Christians who outwardly deny their faith. Maybe they say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God anymore. But God knows in their hearts, you're still mine. Now, I want you to differentiate here between relationship and fellowship. Relationship and fellowship. Relationship, a child has relationship, but no fellowship. He has relationship with God, but no fellowship. A disciple has fellowship. They are a friend of God because they are doing what God wants them to do. Therefore, they have fellowship. Now, if you differentiate between those two, relationship versus fellowship, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Moses, read it out very loudly, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Double for all her sins. What does that mean? I used to think it was basically God saying, 
even if you did all that stuff twice, you're forgiven. What a gracious God. And it could mean that. But I think what he's saying is, I paid twice for your sin, once for your relationship and once to maintain your fellowship. Because once we started a relationship, I gave you the Holy Spirit and he gave you everything you needed for a life of holiness and godliness, according to Peter, right? He has given us everything we need for holiness and righteousness to live that kind of a life. So even though he gave us the Holy Spirit and we have everything we need, we still sin as believers, right? So Jesus is saying, I paid not only for your relationship, but I paid a second time for your, even though you had the power of the Holy Spirit, I paid twice. Relationship versus fellowship. My children have the last name Shogren, or they did until they got married. <laughs> Now they've got new names, the, my daughters. But if I get mad at my kids, are they ever going to lose their name? They'll always be my child. But our fellowship might be broken. A child has a relationship, but a child doesn't have fellowship. Their relationship with God is broken. And that is what needs to be restored before they get back into heaven. Following me. Yes, sons of Abraham, yes? Understand? You've got five minutes. Check and make sure lunch is ready, please. Five minutes. All right. Both of you can go, whatever. What's the biggest thing you've learned so far? Talk to your group. What's the biggest thing you've learned? Yeah, in your group. In your small group. In your small group, what's the biggest thing you've learned? That you, what you said was incorrect. He did come to die for your sin, but you corrected yourself. It wasn't primary. Peter, one thing new. What's impacted you the most? What has impacted me is that uh, I've learned that most of the songs that I sing are about me. <laughs> Good. Good. Gerald, one thing. Uh, I'll just say one thing for this session. Because uh, if these guys have gone even to the other morning session, they cheated. They cheated. Yes, but they were <laughs> They don't get a good grade. So what did you learn from this session? Um, the children of God and the, those who are disciples, uh, disciples of, um, in God. The difference is the fellowship. Great. Fellowship with God. Oh, that's Well, I'm sorry. You can't copy. Yes. Exactly. There's, so there's a song that says, I am a child of God. I am a friend of God. They don't differentiate between the two in their music. So listen, songwriters are not necessarily good theologians. You can have some terrible songs that you sing every Sunday. Okay. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me. Theologically, it's incorrect. He did not think of us above all on the cross. 
He thought of his father's glory above all. One of the sons of Abraham, what's one thing new you've learned? Go ahead. Shh. Stand up so they can all hear. I have learned that to be a son of God, I have to believe. Yep, to be a child of God, you have to believe. Good. To be a disciple, you have to to be a disciple, you have to repent and obey. Excellent. Samuel. I've learned about that. We have been ignorant about the word of God. We've been ignorant about the word of God. Yes, because when we say about immorality, drunkenness, all that, we throw it to the sinners. Yes, they're all going to hell. Yes. Not, we don't count in church. Yep. So we say all those are sinners who go to hell. We don't put them in the church. Yep. But when the Bible says they are brothers. So we've been ignorant because we have brothers who are ignorant, immoral, and all that. Yep, we can have brothers that are all that. Yep. We have. We will not. We should not judge them. Yes. Because we will be together with them in heaven. Yep. Except that they will never be in the bucket. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. One thing new you learned. It's not just enough to believe, I need fellowship. Not just enough to believe, I need fellowship. Moses. Hmm. Hmm. The journey between uh, being a child of God to being a disciple of God is not just a walk in the garden. It's, it's not just a walk in the garden, it's work. Yes. Full of, yes, absolutely. Nemo. When I get saved, I should work toward maturity. Yes, Lydia. God's intention for us once we believe is to grow and become mature Christians, that we should work on being disciples. That once we become a Christian, we should grow, work toward maturity, and work toward being disciples. Joshua. Uh, the church is sick. The church is sick. <laughs> Hudson. Uh, I love the summary where you say our children are still our children because we have a relationship but they can miss the fellowship it sums up, it sums up the story very well sums up the stump. good difference between relationship and fellowship yes. Patrick uh, we are lost to that uh, are, uh, referring to the many scriptures we read that we have so many children because of the many many Yes. We have so many children. We have so many children in 